to Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. We're your hosts, Emma Drake and Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. This is our very first episode, and we're very excited. This past year goes without saying, as it's been described in many ways, whether it's unprecedented, challenging, and an actual disaster. <laughs> One thing, however, is very clear. COVID-19 has put into question everything we thought we knew and forced us to reevaluate our norms, habits, and lifestyles. While we're all facing the same pandemic, the impacts have not been equal for all of us, be it economically or socially, personal experiences and attributes have played a significant role in our experiences. The recovery process has not been linear, nor has it been equal. Women and gender diverse folks, BIPOC communities, low income people, and those with accessibility needs are some of the groups that have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Increasingly, we find there's a demand for any recovery plan and protocol to be inclusive and sustainable. Within Prince Edward Island, recovery is overseen by the Premier's Council for Recovery and Growth. This committee is comprised of various representatives from businesses and organizations, including the Canadian Mental Health Association, Lenoy, and UPEI Climate Research Lab. Concordantly, representatives from various unions and non-for-profit organizations serve as serve as sector champions, aiming to provide expertise to the council and guide its plans in as inclusive a way as possible. The focus for our episode today is on the gender disproportionality in COVID-19 impacts and the aftermath. Taking a gender lens to employment, for instance, men's employment rates dropped less and recovered more quickly, while women faced higher unemployment rates and are facing a slow uphill battle to recovery. This has been particularly attributed to women being overrepresented in industries that have been slowest to recover, known as the five C's. That's cleaning, catering, clerical, cashiering, and childcare. These five C's also have the dubious privilege of being very high risk in that there is a significant contact with the public, many of whom could be asymptomatic carriers of the virus. The PEI Council on the Status of Women developed a report after extensive research and consultations on gender and COVID-19 between March and July 2020, in the words of women identifying islanders. Some of the thematic areas explored by the report include caregiving responsibilities, healthcare and essential workers, small businesses, as well as resilience. With us today is island writer, poet, and editor, our good friend and absolute rock star, also executive director of the PI Advisory Council on the Status of Women, Jane Ledwell. Okay, so with us today is our first guest, Jane Ledwell. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to the first episode of our podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. (laughs) So excited to have you here, Jane. Uh, As we know, on October 2nd, 2020, uh, the PEI Advisory Council on the Status of Women published Gender and COVID-19 on Prince Edward Island. So this is a historical document which looks at uh, women identifying folks on PEI and their experiences throughout COVID-19 and documenting that and ensuring that that data is utilized um, currently in policy practices and in the future as well. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about the process behind that and its creation as it's such a cool, cool document? 
Sure. So the Advisory Council on the Status of Women is uh, it's an arm's length from government agency. The members are appointed by government with a legislated mandate to advise government and educate the public on issues that relate to the status of women. And as we were checking in during the lockdown, during uh, the early days of the pandemic, um, th there were so many themes that were emerging that were um, clearly issues that affect the status of, of women in Prince Edward Island. Um, the experiences of, uh, of caregiving, the responsibilities of caregiving during lockdown, um, a lot of those household domestic responsibilities that fall uh, still primarily to women, even in, in households that are, are working hard for a balance among genders. Um, and just the, the emotional weight of trying to make plans when, there, what, when it wasn't possible to know what was going to happen, uh, when there was so much uncertainty in the world. And all of those themes were, were so front of mind for people um, when we were doing regular check-ins. And then there were some people who were so overwhelmed, they couldn't even uh, check in with other people. They didn't even have time to just see, let, let people know how they were doing or see how other people were doing. So when we were able to get together in person, the first thing that we wanted to do was to record some of the experiences that, uh, that the, the council members had had. Um, and so they all agreed to be interviewed for the project and my coworker Michelle Jay did interviews with the council members and then we also did a round table uh, and all the council members were asked to um, you know get permission and consent from uh, friends and relations and neighbors and people in their circles to share stories that might have been represented in the group of nine that was uh, is was around the table and we also reached out to past chairpersons of the advisory council on the status of women um, and we have chairpersons who are the council has existed for 45 years so we reached people who've been chairpersons since 1980 and as recently as last year um, and nine of our past chairpersons uh, sent along some comments or were willing to be interviewed. And so um, um, between those groups and staff, over 20 voices are represented, plus those circles of friends and, uh, and family and neighbors that they reached out to. So it really is a rich tapestry of stories and experiences from first person points of view. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, as you mentioned, this report has so many intersecting factors, so many intersecting identities and experiences, as well as some very specific recommendations that you folks have uh, put forward. Now, given all of these factors, what does an inclusive and sustainable recovery plan look like to you? I think that uh, what a lot of you know, civil society groups across Canada and we found as well um, is that the, the principles are most important. So there has to be some clarity and some decision-making among policymakers about what really we need to put as first principles. What do we need to say is most important? And so, you know, based on the experiences that the council members described and the participants in the study described, um, putting people first is really, you know, the very first principle. Um, valuing, uh, valuing contributions that are often invisible, whether that's caregiving work or domestic work, other kinds of unpaid work, um, the emotional work of, of, um, of keeping people going through 
um, through the pandemic. I think, you know, one of the themes that we heard is that uh, a lot of households were only as resilient as the caregiver in the household, right? So if the caregiver was getting what they needed to be able to provide support and love and, um, and enough food and shelter to the people uh, that they were giving care to, then the household did okay, um, you know, not without challenges because every household is facing challenges. So providing the tools for resilience. So first that means meeting basic needs like food and shelter, um, access to nature, access to, um, to public spaces, um, transportation, all of those things are really vital. Um, access to income is clearly something that is essential uh, just so that you know that there is enough coming into your household to uh, to make some choices about those basic needs and um, and then what is it that maintains the resilience of um, of people but particularly those who are responsible for for the care and well-being of other people um, and you know so that's mental health supports um, that's really thinking in the public health response and also in public policy response, what are the things that are essential to keeping connections? Um, so, you know, one way that, that in conversations since the report came out, one way that we've looked at it is, well, you know, it's an unusual way of applying a gender lens to a policy, but, um, but maybe in the context of COVID-19, what we need to look at for a sustainable recovery is to say, okay, to what extent does this increase caregiver stress? Um, or on the flip side, to what extent does this increase connection? Um, does this allow for the human connection and support that keeps people mentally well and able to uh, persist, that keeps them resilient? Um, and I think that those are two questions that sound they sound weird within a policy framework, right? Those aren't the usual kinds of policy questions. But I think, you know, if we get down to the, what a policy lens, um, what policy, there's so many lenses that need to, to be applied to any policies that are going to lead to a just recovery, um, that I think that, um, you know, testing it against principles and asking a couple of unusual questions might get us to solutions that are, um, that are more, more durable. Um, and and, uh, and I, I well I hope that that will be the case in any case. Absolutely, and it's a, we completely agree with what you're saying in that this is a very different time from anything we've ever experienced before. So all the strategies and the methods that we've been using over the years might not necessarily be relevant anymore, and we need to be asking those unusual questions that. Uh, you've been putting forward. Now, this is a little bit in line with what you just mentioned, but over the past few months, when we've been speaking of recovery, when we've been speaking of resilience, the main focus has always seemed to revolve around the economy. How do we boost the economy? How do we kickstart it? How do we bring it back to where it was? Now, from your research and the many testimonies, do you think that this should have been the primary focus all along? Or do you think there are other factors that we could be focusing on to help folks even better? Well, I think that um, it depends on what order we put things. You know, I forget who it was who said, when did we stop living in a society and start living in an economy? <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, the socioeconomic factors are, are very much linked with each other. 
but an economy um, is made of of people still it's it's still um, it's you know a still symbolic exchange about that's really about uh, people's labor and contribution and that's about um, and that's about you know income that covers basic needs and uh, and allows for the full flourishing of people right and and you know when we get to the level of government it's you know how we take care of each other using money as a symbolic exchange um, or or how we leave people to um, to their own independent individualistic devices and pursuits so I think that we can see very clearly um, that if we put people first, relationships among people first, and uh, support the connections among people, recognize the intersecting barriers that so many people face to full participation in society, whether that's full participation in um, democratic decision-making, full participation in um, their ability to gather their, their, their food and produce their own food, um, the, you know, full access and use to land and uh, housing, um, the right to a moderate, moderate livelihood, which, we're, which is clearly unequally distributed. So un uh, until we kind of reckon with all of those intersecting factors and figure out ways to um, support people as people, um, I, I think that a lot of the economic questions flow from um, how well we're supporting each other as human beings. Um, and I think economic recovery can flow from that as well. Um, I, I know that the opposite side of that argument is to say, well, you have to take care of the economy first and it will take care of people. Um, you know, as, as someone whose personal bent is anti-capitalist, I would argue that the economy isn't taking care of people and uh, it's time to flip that on its head. Absolutely. That is an extremely valuable and I think um, point that we agree with very much so. Um, and to your point about caring, you know, uh, like you said, if, if you know, we will deal with the economy and make sure that kind of takes care of itself and everything else will follow. We've seen that's not the case. We've seen that um, the pandemic has exposed many different gaps in programs, in social supports, in uh, policymaking as a whole to support people, like you said, caring about people. Uh, so our next question is exactly about that. As we know, um, many different folks, as well as reports, and as well as governments have identified that uh, clear women's progress and recovery is impossible without childcare. Um, and as we know, the federal government is currently exploring what a na national childcare program would look like. Um, but as we know in the report, many participants, and I would say, if not all all of them stated childcare was one of the biggest concerns during COVID uh, because women took on that primary caregiving role, um, you know, intensified more than perhaps they, they already were for sure. Uh, so we know in the report that you folks produced, this is a key concern. Um, what do you feel are some of the key elements to addressing um, child care supports, uh, for example, such as a child care national strategy? 
Um, so, I mean, a national childcare strategy is something that um, the women's movement and many have been pushing for for over 30 years. Um, and that still hasn't produced itself um, in a meaningful way. And it's, it, you know, it's a, it is vital to um, the health and well-being of, of societies if women are to participate in the paid workforce. And given that we see households that require two incomes to be really well-functioning and sustainable in the current um, setup that we have as a society, um, and we can see like the poverty rates among lone parents and particularly lone parent women because lone parent women are the, the largest part of that demographic. It's, it's quite stark, right? As soon as you have, as soon as you take one income out of the equation, um, it's very difficult to make ends meet in, in a Canadian household. So those caregiving needs are essential for participation in paid work. Um, they're also essential for um, just you know, putting the emphasis on children's health and well-being, um, children's development, um, their social needs, their uh, educational needs, and other developmental needs that are um, only partially provided within a home, right? Um, no home is, is adequate to the full and, and flourishing life of a child, <laughs> or at least, at least as a parent, I can say that I know that my household definitely needs other households. So um, structurally, there are a few things that can be considered, but that are challenges in a time when we're facing a contagious virus. Um, one is that, you know, if children need to be together, then um, we probably need a priority placed on, uh, on child care centers remaining open. And um, while school is not child care, it is a part of the, the puzzle of what helps uh, parents participate in the paid workforce. And so we need schools for children's development and education to be a high priority. So what that might look like would be making sure that schools and childcare facilities have uh, really robust plans for protecting uh, the, the, the workers and staff, uh, educators, and students and, and children against contagion, against the worst effects of contagion. And I think we've got some robust plans with cohorts and, uh, and some really good hand hygiene and um, some some physical distancing where that is possible. It's more challenging among children for sure. Um, so we've got some of that. If we put a priority on um, ensuring that those are in place to protect the workers and protect the children, and then we take a look at, well, if we imagine that childcare spaces are going to be last to close or schools are going to be the last thing to close, uh, what do we have to do to make those as safe as possible? What do we need to close before we get to those? So, um, you know, we're getting to know more about the virus. Uh, it, it seems wrong to pick on specific things, but you can, you can say, okay, it's probably more important if we want schools to stay open, we probably need to close bars, <laughs> for example. <laughs> um, Grown-ups might have to make some sacrifices so that children can be together. And ultimately, that will help um, help grown-ups 
what, what you know whether the the storm and ensure that there there is the potential for um, for work following the following the pandemic but you know that's going to be a while as well um, so I'm a little bit off topic but I think that I guess the the key thing that I would say is that um, if we want child care centers and um, and schools to to be the last things that close and I think that that is the the direction that the report suggests, then it might mean sacrifices uh, at the other end. It might mean that uh, that grown-ups make some sacrifices and that we, we take a look at what needs to close first in order to keep those childcare centers and uh, and schools open to meet the needs of children, parents, and, and others. Yeah, and, and just to follow on that line of thought there, Jane, we know there are a number of measures that have been set up, especially, you know, in schools and in child cares, whereby even the slight cough can get a kid sent home and then the whole family has to self-isolate. In addition to that, if we look at COVID-19, it has either uh, put a lot of emphasis on the lack of flexibility that a lot of workplaces have or forced other workplaces to evolve in order to meet these needs. So what do you envision kind of a very flexible workplace to look like that will that would allow for parents to you know look after their children as well but also not miss out on paid time at work well it's crazy hard to sort out it really is and so early in the pandemic the government did put in some emergency leave provisions in the employment standards act and so the employment standards act provides the minimum standard for non-unionized workers across the island and um and it has very little paid leave for sick leave. Um, it, has, it has very little flexibility boiled in. Uh, plus it's a complaint-based system and the concern in small workplaces and particularly in rural parts of Prince Edward Island, it, that if you make a complaint to, uh, based on um, you know, an employer not meeting those minimum standards that really it's very easy to identify who made the complaint or it's very it feels very risky to workers that they will lose their jobs so the employment standards act um, a, re, a poverty reduction review uh, and report a couple of years ago put a high priority on reviewing the employment standards act and giving it a full and detailed um, review and and work up that's more urgent than ever uh, and that's that's really something that has to work so that we set those baseline minimum standards for non-unionized workers across the province at a level that allows them to to keep their community safe and to keep themselves safe and keep their families safe um, if they have to go home as a result of COVID-19. Now, the emergency leave provisions that are in place are, are good ones. They do require that employers allow someone to take emergency leave in, in circumstances uh, where there's a public health emergency. And, uh, and that's supportive if you can access it. And if you can't access it, the only recourse is a complaint. That's a, a challenge for a lot of people. But I think we need to be asking employers, be, you know, it's gonna take a while for an employment standards review to happen. The last comprehensive review was in 2006. And really the, um, the most crucial changes didn't get made until I think 2009, if I'm not mistaken. It took quite some time. There was a change of government within that time period and that slowed things down a little bit as well. But uh, that's, a, that's a, a 
you know, that's, that's too long to wait um, during a pandemic. So I think we need to look at what we're learning as a result of the pandemic about what's working and not working in, in um, workplaces. Um, and, and before then, there need to be some real enticements um, and some real, um, some real opportunities provided for employers to go beyond the minimum standards that we that have been revealed as so inadequate right now. Um, but I will say, you know, as someone who is also a manager, it is extremely challenging. We can't make plans reliably. Every meeting we have to have, like even if we intend to be in person, we have to have a backup plan. I've had that day where I had to go home at uh, 9.30 in the morning because um, because one of my children developed a cough. Um, you know, we've, we have, chosen to self-isolate during the time that, um, that, that we were testing. And, and that's, you know, that's with the good fortune of, of having work that can be accomplished from home. Thank you for sharing that lived experience though too, Jane. I, I can't imagine how challenging getting that call would have been and having to rearrange everything, not just, you know, the staff that you work with, but perhaps the, you know, meetings that you had planned for the day or the work that you had prepared, you know, likewise with your family, any plans you might have had, it's, it's a huge disruptor and, and it's challenging to adapt to that. Um, and I thought the point that you brought up about the Employment Standards Act and the practices in that particular piece of legislation um, really require a gender and diversity lens, I believe, um, you know, from what you, you have just mentioned um, in terms of what can we be doing moving forward. Um, and likewise, on, on that same note, um, you know, in the report, looking at legislation, looking at policy through a gender and diversity lens uh, was a huge perspective that the participants echoed that they're looking for in particularly uh, from the, the report COVID-19 recovery. Um, as we know, the Council of People with Disabilities, the Native Council and Women's Network were just some of the sector champions uh, for the Council of Recovery and Growth. How do you feel having a seat at the table informs policy, such as in this example. Um, as we know, again, having that gender and diversity lens is so required, but um, how do you feel having that seat and providing that lens informs the policy making that we do, have, particularly in COVID right now? Um, I think that it's more important than ever to ensure that there is diversity at, at decision-making tables, to have you know that lived experience, be able to speak to the um, to the changes that are required, and also to have um, to have people who have some knowledge of the systemic um, approaches. Uh, like you know, it is it is um, it is proven again and again around the world that having greater gender parity and greater um, greater diversity of experiences, whether that's um, in terms of ability or age or um, race or ethnicity or culture or um, or language, the having that diversity around decision-making tables leads to better decision-making. Um, it leads to decisions that are more durable. Um, it, it has positive economic effects in, um, in, in organizations that are focused on, on profits um, as, one, as a measurement. Um, so that's been proved again and again, that that greater diversity is important. Um, and so, 
you know, having, ensuring that, um, that there's response from across sectors is really vital. Um, I hesitate a little bit in that the same barriers that face individuals in terms of, uh, in terms of um, access to systemic and structural benefits uh, and barriers to, you know, barriers to participation that would exist for individuals um, exist within sectors as well, right? So, you know, a, a, a person with, um, a person who lives with disabilities is going to have pressures in their lives that make it harder to find time, energy, to advocate for themselves. You know, in addition to facing barriers that affect their day-to-day -day lives, they're also going to be facing accessibility barriers to the time, energy, and resources to, to participate in decision-making and to really um, engage in, in democracy. A person of low income is going to face very specific and particular barriers to participating in decision-making. Um, they may not have the you know, access to technology to participate in a Zoom meeting. Um, the in person with, with, a, a, with a mobility challenge might not have access to, to transit to, um, to be able to, you know, drop off something at a location that, uh, you know, that is required for participating in a, in a consultation or to participate in a, an in-person consultation or may face immune compromised uh, status that keeps them from um, being around other people or leaving their house to participate in some things. So there, there are challenges, but those exist at the sector level as well. So, so many of the not-for-profit um, agencies and organizations that are based in the community and providing services, um, you know, they, they are struggling with the same questions of survival and face some of the same systemic and structural challenges as others. So if it's a matter of, um, you know, access to um, resources, time, staff, energy, all of those things to, to take part in, in, a, in a, even in a Zoom meeting, if it's not part of the work plan that you have project funding for, or if you've had to give up your fundraiser um, in order to um, in order to you know in order to meet public health requirements and 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 you don't have that source of funding to keep your organization alive, or if you're having to spend all of your time and energy protesting for the very right to existence um, without without facing daily harm and violence and um, you know, as a result of your your um, as a result of your race, which has been the the, the uh, discussion most frequently recently. So, if you're spending your time arguing for your humanity um, and putting your energy into resistance movements that um, assert your your right to participation and that just name the systemic and structural challenges, that's that's using a lot of the time that an organization might otherwise use for writing a quiet, well-reasoned brief with evidence and research. I mean, honestly, um, we, we have to look at ways of capturing 
a really wider range of experience and, and, and data and imagining that data in different ways to inform policy because we have to, uh, you know, if we hadn't had the time and resources and, and been so committed to um, dedicating them to creating a gender and COVID-19 report, those stories wouldn't have been captured in a way that was available to the public or to decision makers. Um, and it took hours and, and the participants were so willing to be vulnerable, um, to tell very personal stories, um, to, to give their time to really thinking about their experience. And, but, you know, without that structure of an organization that had um, the flexibility and mandate that allowed it to do that, it, it wouldn't have existed. And those stories would exist, but they wouldn't be recorded in a way that they would be accessible to decision makers today or to um, historians in the future. Absolutely, and you make a very good point, which is that we're starting to see now really which organizations are, have the resources to put the time and energy forward in order to take part in those policies. I know there's been research that's been shown where a number of non-for-profit organizations might not make it through this pandemic um, just because of a lack of funds, lack of staffing, a number of barriers that you know will prevent them from getting there. Now, COVID-19 has of course led to a number of obstacles, but in a lot of ways, it has certainly highlighted a lot of existing issues or existing inequalities in society. Um, how do you think you would envision between the immediate uh, short-term needs and longer structural changes? Like, how do you envision that balance that needs to happen in order for us to emerge on the other side with a much more uh, sustainable society? I think that the more that we strive to go back to restore things, in our recovery to restore things back to the way that they were before the pandemic, the more that we're entrenching the same vulnerabilities that were in that system, the more that we're returning to um, status quo systems of power and oppression that, um, that we can see so clearly serve people so badly and create so much harm. Um, and so, you know, what we return to might not look like what we have. And, and in the time, I understand that that's really hard to think about because there is so much uncertainty already. To add the uncertainty of um, transforming society in, into this uncertainty of what's happening with the pandemic is, it, it, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. It, it's, there's more comfort in returning to the familiar. And I, I feel like there is more return to the familiar and more kind of recourse to the status quo than I was hoping to see at this stage. Um, and so I think it's going to take some energy among, um, among those of us who want to see things change to, to really see what we can do to steer the ship in a slightly different direction. Um, but I think that the, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about as well as a factor is, um, is the climate crisis. Um, so if we survive the pandemic by returning to the patterns of, um, of behavior and economy and interaction that we had before the pandemic, we're not going to survive the climate crisis. So how can we, how can we use this moment to, um, to create better equality, more opportunity among uh, communities that have been um, prevented 
from uh, full participation in, in our society, but how can we also um, change the way that we do things so that we can adapt um, to the climate crisis, so that we can mitigate its future effects. Um, and, and I think, you know, we talked a lot about childcare, um, looking to the future, learning from children, um, learning what they're thinking about their future needs and the needs of future generations can be a real guide, guiding light in this time. Um, and it, it can't just be um, restoring those who've done well before and letting their children inherit wealth. We have to have a planet to inherit. We have to have relationships among um, individuals and and communities that they inherit that are healthy and that, um, that, that carry us forward. Absolutely. It's interesting amidst COVID-19, we also saw at the same time, uh, Black Lives Matter movement as well as indigenous rights. And this was something that was noted in the report as well. It's not a coincidence. When we are experiencing the global pandemic, while it's exposing these inequalities, who are those who are being impacted the most, but also at the same time, if we cannot address those things, if we cannot address, you know, the pandemic, if we cannot address uh, racial inequalities and oppression, how will we ever tackle the single most challenging issue of our time and of history, the climate crisis, which also needs to be part of all these intersecting discussions that we're having because things don't exist in isolation. And I think COVID-19 most certainly, you know, taught us that it's not just about a, you know, health issue, it's a race issue, it's a gender issue, it's a climate issue, all these things intersect. So most certainly that has to be a priority moving forward. Well, and I think, you know, there are two ways of looking at it. One is we have to do everything all at once. And that is absolutely true. And it is also true that everything that we do will, because those, those, those overwhelming issues don't exist in isolation, everything that we do that is trying to make a better future issues. So, you know, if, if my piece of the puzzle is gender and that's, you know, that's where my expertise lies and I, I, I can do something about um, contributing to decision-making that helps um, helps keep um, the gender inequality in focus. I, I do believe that it helps everything um, because issues, so yeah, so it, it's both things at once. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences and such an interesting insight with us today, Jane. Is there anything else you'd like to say at all that we didn't cover? Uh, not that I can think of right now. <laughs> All right, so for our last and most important question for you, Jane, is our MRM segment, also known as the movie restaurant music segment. So we want to highlight any different pieces of music, local restaurants, interesting movies people have seen either, you know, today or 20 years ago. Just want to talk about some interesting items within each of those topics. So we'll hand things over to you. What would you like to share with folks today? Well, the one treat that I um, saved up and bought myself 
um, after the, you know, as soon as stores started to open again, was a little baritone ukulele. <laughs> wow. <laughs> which, is, which is perfect because you don't have to learn any new chords. If you already play guitar chords, you can just tune a baritone ukulele to play the bottom four strings of, of the chords you already know. So that's really helpful. <laughs> and so um, I've found that mostly I just want to play Lucinda Williams songs. <laughs> and so I've been sitting in my, uh, sitting on my couch, um, belting out uh, Lucinda Williams songs, most of which are very sad <laughs> and poetic and uh, and lovely. So um, probably the one that uh, I've been playing most often on my little ukulele is uh, Sweet Old World. It perfectly matches the vibe that we're in this year, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, so I can go next. Um, I, can, I have a movie to recommend today. As it's October, I'm doing my annual Halloween movie marathon every day. So I've recently rewatched Hocus Pocus and it's one of my favorite movies. Objectively speaking, it's not a very good critical a movie, but at the same time, it has really beautiful aesthetics. The music is incredible and the acting just gets me every single time. So Hocus Pocus is my movie recommendation of the day. It's not October without Halloween movies. <laughs> They're some of the worst and best films at the same time that exist, <laughs> but that's okay. We still love them. Um, the restaurant that I want to highlight today is Terra Rosa. So I went there yesterday evening for supper and it was delicious. I don't go there very often, uh, but when I do, it's very special. I got a Pappardel Bolognese, which was delicious. And I really enjoy the overall atmosphere there. And like I said, it's always a treat when I go. So just wanted to highlight that. Awesome. And that's it for our MRM segment. You can find the Advisory Council's report COVID-19 and Prince Edward Island, in the words of women identifying islanders, at the peistatusofwomen.ca website. You can also find them on Twitter, at PEIACSW. That's an awesome report, so we definitely recommend folks take a look at that. Once again, our music is from the talented Shane Pendergast. He's got a show coming up November 2nd, and that's at the Trackety Community Center starting at 8 p.m. That's with his band, the Spud Pickers, Isaac King, Josh Langell, and Sam Langell. You can find tickets at Eventbrite and at Shane Pendy on Instagram. As always, this is Shane's song, Gaspazy. Thank you for listening. Gaspazy.